called Hatikva, and it's translated the hope, and it's the national anthem of Israel. It was written in 1878, but um, this past week, the nation of Israel celebrated the 70th anniversary of the reality of the state of Israel. May 14th, 1948, Israel um, became a nation and the hope uh, that they had sung about for decades uh, had become a reality. Hatikva, the hope. It's a very fitting national anthem as it um, um, recalls this longing uh, of the people of Israel. Isaiah the prophet talks about um, a real hope, a real hope. For Israel. And it's the coming king of Israel. It's a coming uh, Messiah, the, the son of David, uh, who will reign uh, over Israel and the world. A coming king who will sovereignly and supremely rule. He will rule with righteousness and justice throughout the whole land, the whole world. And according to the prophet of Isaiah, this just wasn't a pipe dream. This was something that was very real. It was a certainty that would become a reality. We've already asked you to turn into your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 11. It's in a section that is, uh, many people have called the book of Emmanuel, chapter 7 through 12. The book of Emmanuel, because there's this focus on this child king who's coming. In verse 14 of chapter 7, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. And behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, a name that means God with us. And then in chapter 9, verse 6, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, 
And the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with righteous, uh, with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. And then chapter 11 that we're going to look at today. This theme of the coming king again takes center stage in Isaiah's thinking. There are three things that are emphasized in this passage. The character of this coming king, and then the characteristics of his kingdom, and then the people of that kingdom, and the returning remnant of the Jewish people is going to be emphasized in chapter 11. Verse 1 begins, uh, I, I think rather interestingly, when you talk about a coming king and and the hope uh, of, of, of Israel, because it, it starts out with very humble beginnings. Verse 1, then a, a twig, a shoot, will come from um, the stem of Jesse, and a branch from its roots will appear. The picture is of a, of a felled tree, of, uh, of, a, of, a, of judgment, probably, of a nation that has been brought down and brought low because of judgment. And yet, there is this hope of a, of a twig of life coming back. A shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his root roots will bear fruit. Interestingly, that this is called a, a shoot or a twig from the stem of Jesse. Why not King David? Why say Jesse? David was the great king. Jesse was his father. And there was nothing kingly about Jesse. He was a, a, a sheep herder. That's what, in fact, there was nothing kingly about David either. He was the least of the sons. But Isaiah wants to emphasize the humble beginnings of this coming great king. He is a root from Jesse out of a time of judgment, humble origins. At least it does emphasize that this coming child king, this coming king that he's talking about here, is of the divinic lineage. It's of the divinic lineage. And this coming king, according to verse 2, is going to come with great power because it says that the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. It almost pictures, does it not? Like a, like a bird, like a, like a dove resting. The spirit of God is going to come and he's going to empower him and it's going to rest upon him, and it's going to be a spirit, it says, and there's, there's three uh, pairs of words to describe the, this, the character of this coming king, the spirit of, of wisdom and understanding, moral and ethical skillfulness. Wisdom has the idea of living skillfully, moral, ethical, skillful living, and understanding, making discerning choices. This coming king will be wise, will be discerning in his judgment. Second of all, the spirit is of counsel and strength or power. This king will need no advisors. Within himself is the great capacity to discern, to understand, 
to make right choices and right decisions. And he has the power, the strength to carry those out. Resting in this coming king is this ability to know where to go and how to get there and has the commanding authority and strength to make it become a reality. The third pair of words, this coming king will have the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. He'll be one who will always be in a right relationship with God. This coming king will not be plagued by pride or hubris as the kings of Assyria or the, the kings of Judah and Israel in the day that Isaiah is writing this. Such a stark contrast with the leadership of the day as Isaiah writes about this coming king who will have this spirit of, of great insight and yet humility. He will fear God alone. This coming king, the world has never seen someone like him. Think of all the world leaders that have come and gone on the human stage. Think of current leaders of countries and compared to what we've just read. Never, ever has there been someone like this. Verse 3 continues, this coming king will delight in the fear of the Lord. This coming king will, will only do what pleases God. He will have such an intimate relationship with God. He will know the heart of God. He will do an, anything and everything that pleases him. It continues in verse 3, he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears. He's going to have the ability to go beyond just appearances. He knows the hearts. He's not going to be fooled by um, um, or be deceived by the outward appearance of things. He has this discerning eye that cuts deep down into people's souls. Verse 4 says, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth or the meek of the earth. His rule will conform completely to God's laws, to God's standards. He will reflect perfectly the standard of God's requirements for all his creation. No one will be able to pull the wool over his eyes. He will not be tricked into anything or persuaded by anything other than what is true. He's not going to be persuaded by people's clever uh, falsehoods or deceptions. He will judge the world with equity, with righteousness, with truth. And he'll make sure no one is taken advantage of. He'll make sure no one will be oppressed. He will reign with righteousness, with justice, with truthfulness. The last part of verse 4 says that he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. His word will be the final authority. What he says goes. So let it be said, so let it be written, so let it be done. His word is the final authority. Even pronouncing of sentences of judgment against those who would seek to rebel. Righteous people will be upheld. Wicked will be judged. 
he will deal decisively, powerfully, effectively when he reigns supreme. This king is not going to tolerate bigotry or racism. This king is not going to tolerate the taking of innocent life, of school shootings. This king is not going to tolerate abortion, the killing of unborn children. This king is not going to tolerate the mistreatment of children who are born. This king is not going to tolerate any type of abuses. He's not going to tolerate corrupt politics. He's not going to tolerate evil. His word will go forth, and he will reign with a mighty hand of power, and he will deal justly on this earth. Folks, the world has never, we can't even imagine what a reign like this would be like. We can't even, can you even conceive of a world leader of, of such quality, of such impeccable character? But he's coming. Verse 5 says, righteousness will be the belt about his loins, faithfulness the belt about his waist, and he will not deviate from that. He will be the king of kings, the lord of all lords. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And then Isaiah describes what his reign will look like and the impact of that reign. Look at verse 6. <clears throat> the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion, the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them. Verse 7 says, also the cow and the bear will graze, and their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like, like the ox, and the nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den, and they will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Savage, hostile beasts will be tamed. All of creation will be transformed. There will be this peaceful coexistence. Verse 7, the very nature of the animal kingdom is going to be transformed. Lions will not be tearing apart other animals for meat. It'll eat straw. The curse will be reversed. I think that's the implication of verse 8. You have a, a, a nursing child playing at the hole of a cobra, or a weaned child putting his hand on the viper's den. I don't know for sure if Isaiah was hearkening back to that passage in Genesis chapter 3 in the judgment where God tells the woman, I'm going to put enmity between your seed and the serpent's seed. But here the, the curse is reversed as even a child plays with serpents at the serpent's den. This is almost unfathomable. And it's going to be universal. The earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord like the waters that cover the sea. Nowhere on the face of this earth will they not understand or, or learn of this great king and understand his righteous ways and his just ways. They will be under his rule and his reign 
He is the sovereign of all. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us, reigning supreme. It's going to be Eden-like. I think, again, I think maybe Isaiah is hearkening back to that perfection of Eden. There, there will be this sense of the, the Hebrew idea of shalom, of, of, of completeness, of peace that everything will be right, everything will be functioning as it was designed to be, um, to, to function. There, there's shalom. Now, I, I know of no reason why these verses that we just read should not be taken literally. <laughs> that there is a coming day when this coming king will reign, when his, the knowledge of him will will cover the whole earth like waters cover the sea, where all of creation, which according to the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8, is groaning now because it's in futility. It's impacted by the fall, by sin. Paul says it's groaning, waiting to be set free. And one day when that king comes to reign, as we've just seen in Isaiah chapter 11, all of that will, that curse will be reversed. All of nature will be aligned in shalom and harmony, and he will reign supreme. I have no understanding why you cannot take these verses at face value. Because when the coming king reigns, everything, everything will be different. The wolf will indeed live and dwell with the lamb. And the leopard will indeed graze with a young goat. And, the, and a child will play at the cobra's den. No one will be harmed and hurt in all his holy mountain, for the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. Verse 10 says, It will be then in that day that the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. The NIV says, in that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him. We saw this back in chapter 2, verse 2, that the nations will come before the holy mountain, before God, before the king. They will come in obedience, in reverent worship before him. The nations will be drawn to this king, this Messiah. They will seek out his wisdom, his counsel. It'll be a day that this world has yet, has not seen anything like it up to this point. Can we come up with any period of time in the history of mankind in the last 2,700 years when this was written that, that what we've just read, if taken at its face value, that it's ever happened? No. So, who is this coming king? Well, the angel Gabriel announced it to a poor carpenter in Nazareth of Galilee 2,000 years ago. And the angel said, Joseph... Son of David, do not be afraid take, as to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, 
and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And then Matthew continued and said, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, through Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall be with child, shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. 2,000 years ago, Emmanuel came. The king was born. Matthew makes it very clear as he accounts the human genealogy of Jesus that, that Jesus is tied to the Davidic line. In his opening verse in Matthew 1, the record, it says, the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This is Jesus. This is the one who came 2,000 years ago. The king was born. In the final section of this chapter, in chapter 11, it focuses on the, the return of, of the Jewish people back to Israel in the last days. Notice it begins, then it will happen on that day. So we're still in the context of, of, of these this time that is yet to come, this future day when the king reigns with righteousness and justice. On that day, in that time period, the Lord will again recover the second time with his hand the remnant of his people who, re who will remain from Assyria and Egypt and Pathros and Cush and Elam and Shinar, Ham Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. And he will lift up a standard for the nations and assemble the banished ones of Israel and will, will gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Verse 13 says, Then the jealousy of Ephraim will depart, and those who harass Judah will be cut off. Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah. Judah will not harass Ephraim. In other words, this dispersed nation of, of 12 tribes that have been lost and dispersed and around the four corners, somehow miraculously they're going to come together again in, in in one entity they will swoop down verse 14 on the slopes of the philistines on the west together they will plunder the sons of the east they will possess edom and moab the sons of ammon will be subject to them and the lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of egypt and he will wave his hand over the river with a scorching wind and he will strike it into seven streams and make men walk over dry shod and there will be a highway from Assyria, for the remnant of his people who will be left, just as there was for Israel in the day that they came out of the land of Egypt. And so Isaiah is using this kind of analogy of the first exodus as the people were released from the hand of Pharaoh and they were crossed over on the dry land to the Red Sea and they came back into that land of promise that God had said to Abraham, I'm going to give it to you. As an unconditional promise, I'm going to give it to you and your people forever. And as the Israelites crossed that Red Sea under Moses' leadership, Isaiah is saying there's a day coming in that day when this great king is going to reign supreme. The Jewish people are going to be called from the four corners of the world. And he's going to lead them with a mighty hand. I like... Uh, how, why Isaiah used that in verse 11. In that day, the Lord will again recover a second time with his hand. And again, it harkens back to the first exodus 
Um, in Exodus 13, 13, uh, 13, 3, it says, And Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you went out from Egypt by a powerful hand. The Lord brought you out from this place. Or Deuteronomy 6, 21, Then you shall say to your son, We were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt, and the Lord brought us from Egypt with a mighty hand. And that phrase, the mighty hand, is used uh, often in this description of the Exodus of Moses' leadership. And now he uses it again because there's a second time, it says. Verse 11. He will again recover a second time with his hand. I'm not sure what Isaiah meant by that. If the first time, maybe contextually, we could say that first time he was referring to the exodus out of Egypt, and yet he didn't necessarily call the Jewish people from the four corners of the earth. They were slaves in Egypt. But there's a second time. Why did he say a second time? Again, he might be referring to the first time, but there is a second time coming when Jewish people, the remnant of his people, are going to be called from the four corners. If you look at the, just the plain sense of the words of this passage, a remnant of the Jewish people, are going to, that remnant is going to return and God is going to do it with a mighty hand just like he did in the exodus out of Egypt. I, Isaiah chapter 11 is a very significant portion of Scripture. Uh, it, it, it's, it's a very important, it's a very exciting passage of Scripture that speaks of something that is yet to come Again, if you take this in its plain, normal sense of interpretation, these things have not happened yet. I don't see a wolf dwelling with a lamb. I wouldn't want to be the lamb if it was in this day and age. And you see a child playing by a cobra's den, you wouldn't tolerate it. These days have not happened. There's no king who's ever come and brought justice and righteousness and peace on this earth. This earth, earth is not full of the knowledge of the Lord like the waters cover the sea. Nations are not coming up before the king for his wisdom and, and counsel to honor him. What's exciting about this passage is that this is a prophetic passage that we can say with absolute confidence it has not happened yet. But there's a sense in which this passage, in part, has happened. As we just read in Matthew. Matthew said, or Gabriel said, this is a fulfillment of Isaiah, the birth of Jesus. Jesus Christ was Emmanuel. And he was the king who came 2,000 years ago. And yet, questions still need to be raised. We don't see the fulfillment of this in its totality. So when will, when will this coming king reign again? When will this world experience the righteous reign of Messiah, the son of David? 
When will this creation return to Eden-like shalom and peace? When will the wolf dwell with the lamb and the leopard uh, eat and graze with a young goat and a little child lead them all? When will the curse be reversed so that there's no enmity between the child and the serpent? When will this second time occur? When the Jewish people are going to be called from the four corners of the world and brought back into their homeland. Why was it 70 years ago this last week after 2,500 years there was never a nation of Israel after 586 B.C. when the Babylonians came and took Israel off into captivity, destroyed Jerusalem, burned the temple, and ended the state of Israel. 2,500 years. And then a miracle took place 70 years ago. What's that the beginning of? What, what's happening? Is it a precursor of things that we've just read? When is this kingdom of righteousness? When is this kingdom of justice? Is there anything in any of you, when you read the newspapers and, and, and read the political columns of going on in our country, and you read what our leaders are doing, or the world leaders, is there anything in you that just is kind of disgusted and longs for a king, a ruler, who's described this way? I mean, it does it... Are, are, are we just so accepting of the perverse corruption of our elected leaders, of, of national leaders around the world? We just, well, it's just the way it is. Is there anything in your heart that says, Emmanuel, Emmanuel... God, come with us. But the day is coming. And the knowledge of this king will cover the world like the waters cover the sea. Does anything stir within you folks that longs for a king to come? Well, he's coming. He's coming. And he will reign supreme. But the kingdom has not yet come. And yet the king has. By the way, this king had to come before 70 AD because the temple was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. All the genealogical records were lost. There's no way to trace back to the line of David after 70 AD. The son of David, the son of Abraham, they could check that out when Jesus came. They can no longer do that. The king has come the kingdom has not. So how is it that the king has come, but not his kingdom? 
Last fall, Don Denhartog taught a series on 2 Thessalonians, and I just want to invite you or encourage you to go back to that series. It was entitled Recalculate. It's on our website. You could go back to last fall. And specifically, on August 20th, he taught a sermon entitled um, uh, back, uh, back on Track. And you go to that August 20th sermon because he's, he gave a, a great overview and a picture of, of a timeline. Uh, we've been having a, a, an adult learning center class all this year on the book of Revelation. Uh, Bob Leonard has been teaching it. And the, the lessons are online. And I, I, th I think, Bob, I, th I think even today, uh, you're going to be talking a little bit about the millennial kingdom. I've, I've, are you, Bob? It's, ch it's chapter 20. Sorry for those of you in Fellowship 3 who uh, can't see Bob. Well, you're blessing, but... Um, <laughs> Uh, so I'm glad you're doing that because that gives me something to s help study <laughs> next week because next week I want to focus just a sermon specifically on this coming kingdom. But check Don's series out as well. Here's a, just a quick summary. These are things that uh, we teach here and go over. I, I understand that there are godly scholars who take different views on this. I understand that. But if you, again, I think take the plain, literal sense of Scripture. What you see is that in the time of Isaiah, there were 700 years before the king came and Jesus' first coming. He was that child born, and the promise was he will sit on the throne of his father David. That was the promise to Mary, to Joseph. But a strange thing happened on the way to Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday as the people were crying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is our king. This is the time. This is it. And yet five days later, he's hanging on a cross. He's paying for our sins. He died. And we enter a time that the Bible calls a mystery. It wasn't recorded in the Old Testament. It's this church age. It's an unspecified time. We know it's been going for almost 2,000 years now. But there's an event that's going to take place that's going to remove this church out of this world, the great taking away. We call it the rapture. And then there's a period of time that it's called the 70th week of Daniel because Daniel chapter 9 said there are 70 groups of seven years that are yet for the Jewish people. 69 of those, 483 years, have already taken place. But there's a remaining seven-year period, according to Bible prophecy that yet, yet is to occur. It's called the day of the Lord, and it's a time of great judgment and purging on this earth. And then the Bible teaches Jesus Christ, the King. He will return in power and glory as the Lion of Judah. And it's then that he will set up his reign on this earth that we've just read in Isaiah chapter 11. And oh, what a reign it will be. The world has yet to experience it, but it's coming. The king has come. His kingdom has not. We await that day, but... If you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, something amazing happened to you, to me, 
the moment I trusted Jesus as my Savior as a five-year-old little kid in a farmhouse in rural Nebraska. Whenever it was for you, the moment we trusted Christ as our Savior, He took up residence in our life. The King did. Paul wrote it in Colossians 1.27, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Do you know Jesus as your personal Savior? Do you know that the King resides within you? The presence of His Spirit? The King. And all His righteousness and all His glory, all His justice... can be lived out in our life, even while we await the full expression of the kingdom here on earth. That's why Paul wrote such words as 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. Or Ephesians 5, 8, for you are formerly of darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. He says, walk as children of light, for uh, light consists of goodness and righteousness and truth. Or in Colossians chapter 2, you have been given fullness, or you have been made complete in Christ, who's the head over every power and every authority. You have been made complete. You are a new creation in Christ. All things have become new. All things have become new. You see, folks, we don't have to wait to the day when the kingdom comes because when we trust Jesus as our Savior, even while we're waiting for the kingdom to come, the king can transform our lives right now. The moment we trust him, he transforms us. Have you put your trust in Jesus as your personal Savior? One day, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess He is the Lord. He is the King eternal. The knowledge of the Lord will cover this world like the waters cover the sea. Every knee will bow. But folks, God so loved the world in His love. He sent His Son, the King, the Emmanuel, the child King into this world to accomplish His first work to be our Savior, to die on the cross for our sins, to pay the penalty of our sins. He in his love took our sin upon himself and he was judged by a holy God. The wrath of God was poured out upon his son and Jesus died to pay the penalty of our sin. And he rose again on the third day so that he could offer anyone a free gift of eternal life, the presence of the King in your life. Have you, have you trusted Christ as your Savior? Do you know that if you walk out of those doors today and you were struck by a car or, or some bizarre thing happened to you, do you know where you're going to spend eternity? Well, you can know because the Bible says the moment of belief, if you trust Christ, the moment of faith that good news of eternal life is given to you. That is based on a promise of the Scriptures, not my idea. 
Have you trusted Christ as your personal Savior? I, I would wonder why, why wouldn't you? Young person here, older person, have you trusted Christ? Invite the King into your life. But he wants to live out through us the kingdom of righteousness, of justice, of peace, of joy, of goodness and kindness, of faithfulness, self-control. The fruit of the kingdom. The kingdom is yet to come, but the reality of the kingdom can be lived out in our life, folks, right here, right now. And there's a reason. Because while this world waits for the glorious kingdom and the king to reign on this world, on the throne of David in Jerusalem, while we wait for that, we are to spread the good news everywhere we go. When you go to work on Monday, go back into your homes or into your neighborhoods, when you go to school, Christ lives in you if you know him. You're bringing the king into that place. And folks, as we live our life in humble submission to the king, his control in our life reflects out love and joy and peace, righteousness, holiness. That's our calling. We're not to hunker down and wait someday for that kingdom to come. We're to go out and live the kingdom now in the power of the Holy Spirit. We are the precursors of the coming kingdom because of the king who resides within us. This is God's plan. And folks, this is Hatikva. This is the hope. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Do you know him? Are we as believers in Jesus Christ living in light of it? Examine your hearts, dear congregation. Are we living for the king? Is he living his life through us? That is our calling. And that is the hatikva of the world. It's the hope of a savior who transforms lives. And one day, we'll return in glory and transform it all when he reigns in his kingdom. Let's pray. Our Father, continue to give us understanding. Help us to see ourselves not as citizens of this earth, but ultimately citizens of heaven, empowered with your presence, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, through the person of your Holy Spirit to help continue to transform us into people of righteousness and holiness and justice, to be people who stand up for what is right, who to speak out with boldness for the King, who live transformed lives that attract others, Father, to you. In a world of darkness, help us to be children of light. I pray this, Father, for your glory, for you're worthy of it. And then, Father, encourage our hearts as we struggle day in and day out in the mess of this fallen world. Encourage our hearts with the, with the truth that one day the heavens will open 
and the king will return. And righteousness and justice and faithfulness and truth will reign. For your glory again, Father, we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.